Uh, if you have a Bible, open up 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, we have been going through a sermon series called We Are. Uh, and this We Are sermon series is helping us all understand what it means to be a church member. We're actually going to take, uh, this is so foundational for us, even though we're in this long, uh, Joe and I, as we talk through it, this is such a foundational idea that we want you to know. We're going to take our six sermons and put them into a six chapter book and put it in the lobby permanently so that everyone that's new that missed the sermon series will always know we can hand it to them. This is what it means here at Remedy to be a church member. And so uh, just a reminder, um, they're on the video, but the first week we talked about what it means to be the body of Christ, that everybody has giftings, no matter what you think your giftings are. All of those, whether they're seemingly more public or seemingly less public, all of those are equally important and all are to be used at this church for the benefit of others primarily, of course, for yourself, but for the benefit of others. And everyone is to utilize those gifts. Next, we're the family of God. And so since we're a family, if someone is in your family, they can't leave it. No, you can't kick them out of your family. And the same kind of idea that once we're in the family, we love each other and treat each other like the family of God. That if we have things going on, we always talk about it. We're, we're, we're declared to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we live in light of that. Next is embassy of God. That uh, much like a, a, an embassy in foreign countries, that it's a, a place that you can go to for, for protection f- from your country. And so the church should be a place of protection and love and care for its, its church members. But also an embassy goes into a foreign land and speaks on behalf of the king to the people there. And that's who we are. We're ambassadors for Christ. We proclaim the good news of the king to this world around us. We also talked about what it means to be a royal priesthood, that every one of us are part of the priesthood. And therefore, among many things, we're an active part of the worship service, uh, both here and in, in all the aspects of what it means to be a part of a Sunday morning. We serve as much as we can as the body of Christ. Uh, we serve <clears throat> in the areas that we need, <clears throat> sorry, what, in the areas that we need to make Sunday morning happen, whether it be from kids area to making Lord's Supper and coffee and, and all the different aspects, but also in the service, we're all active part participants in the service. It's, you don't, just because you sit there doesn't mean that you're just a, a, a watching and I'm the one that's the active. No, no, because we're all priests. Uh, we're all active parts. And so we all Actively take part of the worship service by singing, de- declaring the goodness of God, etc. We're also, as Joe, Joe did last week, gardeners and a garden. And um, primarily, we're looking at the fact that the Lord has called us this. And so because of that, we want to tend uh, the garden well because the Lord has done that for us. Caring for others, nurturing others, um, and being there for them. Lastly, and we're going to do, which is today, is a temple. And there's some implications about what it means to be a temple. So uh, I'm going to read the two texts. If you're able to stand, I'd love for you to stand. If you can't, that's fine. I'm going to read the two texts we're going to look at today. And then I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You'll say, thanks be to God. So stand with me. First, First Corinthians 3, then we'll be in 1 Corinthians 6, but 1 Corinthians 3, just two verses, verses 16 and 17. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, it says this, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. One page over, 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 19, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that the sexually immoral person sins against his own body? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It's the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let me pray, and then we'll examine these two texts and understand what it means to be God's temple. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love, your mercy, your kindness. Be with us now as we look into your word and try to understand what it means to be God's temple. And because of that, what it means to be a church member, a part of God's temple. We pray that you would, uh, Lord, that you would open our eyes to these great, magnificent truths. Um, Help us understand what it means to be a church member. But also, Lord, uh, that you would stir our affections for Christ because all of this has been made possible because of the cross of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at two separate texts, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6. And as it would have it, since there's two texts, I have two points. <laughs> one in 1 Corinthians 3 and one in 1 Corinthians 6. It's really obviously pretty, pretty straightforward. But let's, let's examine this for a second. So in f- both texts, you see the word temple in 1 Corinthians 3. In 1 Corinthians 6, there's, there's a couple words, different words for temple in the Greek New Testament. Um, one is naos, one is hieron. You don't have to know that, but you just know what it means. Hieron means kind of like the temple precincts. Naos means the temple itself. Both 1 Corinthians 3 and 6 both use naos. It means the temple itself, the sanctuary itself. It's pointing to for us to understand that this is where the presence of God dwells. And so and so in 1 Corinthians 3, when we're the temple of God, in 1 Corinthians 6, when we're called that the temple that we are the temple where the Holy Spirit resides, both of those are saying this is indicating to us that this is where the presence of God can be found. The presence of God is here. Now, there's a difference between 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6, which we're going to see. But I, I want you to understand both of those are using the, this word temple, naos. Now, um, what's key for us to understand, we went through 1 Corinthians a while back, um, whenever we weren't even in this building, maybe a couple of years ago. But for the pagan Corinthians, using the word temple was a term that they had heard because they had sexual temples, uh, goddess temples all over. And so whenever they would use the word temple, it should evoke for them some kind of meaning. And what Paul is trying to do is to pull them away from the idea of these false understandings of temple and saying, now this word is quite pregnant with meaning in the word temple in first Corinthians, where he's saying you, those things aren't the temple. Now you are the temple. And he's trying to help them understand which a lot of texts are there's an important meaning regarding the local church. Whenever God says you're his temple and which you've already defined when we see the word naos, which is you're the sanctuary. You're pointing to the very presence of God. The presence of God is with you. And he's not saying that those are real temples around here, these false pagan dens of debauchery. Instead, he's saying that's the wrong way to think about temple. Instead, there's a, there's a, um, a redeemed way to think about temple. And he's saying, you're the temple. You're the temple, a place where the very presence of God is dwelling. Uh, Gordon Fee says this, one of the desperate needs of the Corinthian church and therefore us, our, our church, is to recapture the vision of what's being said by God's grace and therefore also what God intends the church to be. So there's a lot of things that the Lord wants us to understand about what the church is when we talk about it, God's temple. In other words, the church doesn't have to look like the pagan culture of Corinth. Therefore, it can actually be holy. So when he says, you're the temple, he's helping them understand since the presence of God resides here, you're holy. And in the same way that he's talking that to, uh, saying that to the Corinthian church, he's actually telling us that this church, Remedy Church in Rock Hill, does not have to look like the pagan culture around us. You're saying, well, this is Rock Hill. This isn't, you know, one of those other places. This is America. 
And we're rife with debauchery around us. And he's saying, we don't have to look like the rest of the world and what they might define as some kind of sinful place of a temple. Instead, we, the church, don't have to look at We are holy. We can reflect the very presence of God. As Garland says, it's a startling declaration to identify a community Uh, This community of Corinth gathered together in their cramped little diminutive house churches as the temple of God. Remember, we're talking about Corinth, messy church Corinth. First Corinthians 5, guy hooking up with his dad's um, new wife, Corinth. Like we're talking really, really sinful, Corinth. And he's looking at them saying, you're the temple of God. It's an amazing declaration. His startling declaration, as he said, compared to the grand temples in Corinth and the magnificent temple in Jerusalem, they, Corinth, appeared to be rather ramshackle. But the, image of the, but the image of them as God's temple harks back to the foolishness of God and the theme of unity. God uses always things that we would always think of. That's not what God's going to do. That's not what he's going to do. And he is. He's going to use Corinth and therefore he's going to use us. And he's going to use his local expressions of church all around Rock Hill to... Um, Build his kingdom. So the first thing that we want to see, as I said, we're seeing this word temple and three and six. And there's a, there's a clear distinction between the two. We're going to see those in the two points. The first one is this. Number one, you can go ahead and put it up. We, the church, are God's temple and dwelt by a spirit. There should be a word are after that. Um, we, the church, are God's temple and dwelt by his spirit. Now, here's the key difference between 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6. If you're looking at 1 Corinthians 6, you can see it. Um, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You can see that it's speaking to an individual there. He's speaking to an individual. You individually as a Christian, you're the temple. But in 1 Corinthians 3, he's not talking to you as an individual. He's actually um, talking to the congregation, plural. Watch this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. 16, 17, do you not know that you, that's a plural, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Again, plural. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you, you plural, are that temple singular. And so there's a distinction between 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, which is 6, he's talking about you and he's looking at you and saying, you're God's temple as a Christian. But we're going to get to that. But 1 Corinthians 3, he's actually looking at you, plural, the congregation. And he's saying, you, church, you're God's temple. So there's, there's two ways to think about God's temple, individually and corporately, which is important. And we're going to talk about the implications of both. But Paul's trying to bring out the sacredness of the community of believers by liking them into a temple in which God dwells. And he's addressing the whole church here. As Leon Morris says, the thought is that the whole community of believers is God's shrine. So in context, he's talking about all of them. And he's saying in verse 9, you were God's field and God's building. Joe addressed that last week. And now you're God's temple. This has special meaning in Corinth, as I've said, because of the um, kind of meaning of the words that they already kind of associated with the word temple. And now he's saying you're God's temple because you're holy because of Christ. So that means church, you are right now the temple of God. You, we are, especially when we gather together in, the, in this assembly We are the place where the Holy Spirit resides. He's dwelling in this place with us. This is pretty amazing. Not you singular, but you plural. We are thinking about the corporate gathering and saying that we are the very place together as we get together. We are 
God's temple. So that has three implications then. They're all in the text. Three implications. Number one, put up, or number A, letter A. That's what I mean. Three implications. A, um, God's presence resides in our midst in the assembled. That says on, another typo, sorry. In the assembled worship. So since we are the temple of God, one of the implications is this, that God's presence is literally dwelling in our midst when we're together. Even right now. Not just when we sing, not just when we take the Lord's Supper, but as we're together, we are the temple of God. And as this is the case, God's presence is literally dwelling of us right now. And the presence is his spirit. That alone marks us off as God's new people. We've been saved. The Holy Spirit resides in us. And when we come together, we, because of the Holy Spirit, are united by the Holy Spirit. We together are God's temple. Now, if you're a believer in Christ, you're thinking, I already knew that. That's something I got. That's, I know that, but let's stop and kind of walk through that slower and really think about what it means. Since we all know this to be true, and perhaps it slips our mind, perhaps we don't think about it as often as we should or as deeply as we should, consider it with me right now. What does it mean to think about the fact that we are God's temple right now? That God is literally dwelling in our midst right now. What does it mean? I'll say it this way. What should it mean? What should it mean as you sit there right now knowing you're God's temple? That we are God's temple. I think that it means a lot of things. His presence is here right now since we're God's temple. His sanctuary, his presence, his place of pleasance. And so it means that since that's the case, we listen. We listen really intently. To what God is saying through his word. We listen really intently. That means whenever we sing, we sing as loud as we can together as one voice. Because we are the temple where the Holy Spirit is is here with us. And so we want to, we have to be a part of that. And we want to sing as loud as we can. We want to worship. It means that whenever we interact with each other, because the Holy Spirit is here, his presence is dwelling in us. And we are the temple. It means as we speak to each other, we speak to each other in ways that are honoring to each other. One writer says this. The Spirit of God dwells in your midst when you've assembled together for worship. That is, Paul's reflecting on the church as the corporate place of God's dwelling, who, when gathered in Jesus' name, experience the presence and the power of the Lord Jesus in their midst. So I I know, you know, each week, I didn't do it today, but each week I kind of, uh, start off all the, all the sermons at the very beginning, eager, expectant, early every Sunday. And I really am like trying to drive that into your head <laughs> that you're here every single Sunday. You're eager, expectant. But the reason why is because there's biblical precedent. You literally should expect, as God's temple, expect that God's going to do something through his word this morning. How should it affect you every day knowing that we really are God's temple as we come together? We should expect God to do something. We're eager for him to do something. We can't wait to hear from God's word. We can't wait to sing together in worship. We can't wait to interact with each other because the spirit is in us and we are God's temple in ways that are so Christ honoring and gospel pleasing. We want to do that. So the first implication is that God's presence literally resides in our midst even right now. Even right now, that's pretty awesome. It's something that I think we know, but perhaps we don't think as deeply about the meaning of it as we should. The second one, the second implication, you can see it in B. I'm sorry, it's number B. It's in verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. 
Well, that's positive. All right, let's talk about it. So uh, B, no one should ever be guilty of destroying the church, God's temple. Let's make sure we understand what this means. Uh, Paul is not referring to people outside the church destroying the local body. He's referring to people, part of a local body, destroying the local body. And he's saying, don't ever be guilty of being a part of a local expression of Christ, a body of Christ, and then doing something that destroys that local body. Don't do that. No one here should ever be guilty of destroying God's church. As it says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. This is very harsh, right? It's very, very strong and straightforward as it's saying it. This goes for every local church of Jesus Christ, every local expression. Do not be the one in a local church that destroys any of God's local churches. To do this is to destroy God's temple. And you should never want to do that. As Morris says, Leon Morris, to engage in making divisions within a church is to destroy the divine society and thus invite God to destroy the sinner. Now, let's, let's talk about what this means, okay? So, first off, it doesn't mean that if you see something wrong, you have to be quiet because you don't want to break that. If you see something wrong, theologically incorrect, etc., you should talk, right? It's meaning don't stir up division in such a way that destroys the, God's temple, if there's something theologically wrong, etc., you should talk to the elders. Like, we want to know those things. That's our charge to know about it and correct it. So it doesn't mean, you know, you're an automaton and a robot. You have no opinion. Never say a word. It doesn't mean that, right? So maybe we can say it this way. Maybe we can say it in a positive sense. This is the negative way of no one should ever be guilty of destroying the church. Let's say it positively. Everyone, with as much power as you have, uh, with all the reason that you have in the Holy Spirit should practice unity as much as possible within the church. Do everything you can to enhance unity within this church body because we are God's temple. We are the place that God resides. And so we want to practice unity. As it says, it, my pastoral professor said this so many times in my pastoral class. And I thought it was too many times, but he said it so many times, it's literally just... just imprinted into my brain, Ephesians 4.3, that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Ephesians 4.3, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I think that's the positive way to say this. We should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We should not be guilty of destroying the church. Now again, remember, something's wrong, tell your elders. We need to know, obviously. But since we are God's temple, we want to enhance unity not be guilty of destroying the church. And this is, this is talking about internally people destroying the internal local expression of God's church. We don't want to do that. Next one is this. Um, you can see it in the second half of C. For God's temple is holy and you, plural, are that temple. But the implication when he says for God's temple is holy is this. Number C, letter C. Uh, God's temple must be holy. We are God's temple God has declared us holy, therefore we must pursue holiness. The character of the church of God is to be understood since we are his possession, that we are therefore to be holy. We are, since we've been declared holy because of Christ and his cross, therefore we pursue holiness. Think about this. I and mean, again, this is striking. I know I've tried to uh, make sure we get our minds wrapped around this. This is striking. Paul is telling 
Corinth, the den of debauchery, be holy. If Paul's telling them that, certainly he's implying it for us and all the other local expressions of local bodies. He expects them to be holy. He certainly expects us to be holy. Because they had, I mean, they had a long way to go. It's this messy church Corinth. He expects us as well to be holy. So that's the first. Number one is that we, the church, are God's temple and dwelt by his spirit. The second is 1 Corinthians 6. You can go ahead and put up number two. You individually are God's temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You individually are God's temple. Now, there's a central exhortation happening from 12 down to 19. There's a central expo- uh, exhortation. It's dealing with holiness and verses 12 through 19. We're keying in on 19 and 20 because it uses the language of temple. But there's a central exhortation in verses 12 through 19 in regard to holiness because uh, we can be unholy in a lot of ways, right? The, it's centralizing its its uh, its location of where you should pursue holiness is in sexual morality. You can look at verse 12. Not all things are lawful. All things are lawful for me, Corinth says. Paul says, but not all things are helpful. Corinth says, all things are lawful for me. Paul says, but I will not be dominated by anything. Corinth says, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. Paul says, but God will destroy one and the other. The body is not meant for his. He comes in, uh, points in, uh, the body is not meant for sexual malady, immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And what God, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do not know that you are members of Christ. Now remember, Corinth had just rampant sexual morality. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, never. Or do you not know that he is joined to a prostitute becomes one flesh with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So he's, he's helping us understand if you become one with someone um, in a sinful way, you are now joined to them. Don't do that because you have become one with Christ and you have become one with his spirit. That's what you should do. And then it says in verse 18, what we're going to key on, flee sexual morality. Ever the sin a person commits outside the body, sexual morality a person sins against his own body, flee. And so um, you are God's temple. Now, if you remember in uh, number one C, we're holy. Here he's going to help us understand what that can look like. But we are supposed to flee all kinds of forms of sexual morality. Now, in the ESV, we have this word sexual immorality. In the Greek, it's just one word, porneia. So porneia obviously is where pornography comes from, but it encompasses all forms of of sexual immorality. Anything that's not um, biblical marriage, sex inside of biblical marriage, anything outside of that is sexual morality. And he's telling you to flee that. This is why Kevin DeYoung writes this about uh, in a book called Hole in Our Holiness, as in like there seems to be a hole in the way that we pursue holiness and why we don't. He says this, This is not about the culture out there. It's about those of us in here, about what we as Christians are doing and what we're seeing, what we may not know about what we're doing and seeing. I'm afraid we, including me and all of us, I'm afraid we Christians don't have the eyes to see how much the world has squeezed us into its mold. If we could transport Christians from almost, almost any other century to any of today's Christian countries in the West, I believe that 
I believe what would surprise them most is how at home Christians are with sexual impurity. It doesn't shock us. It doesn't upset us. It doesn't offend our consciences as it ought. In fact, unless it's really, really bad, sexual impurity just seems normal. Just a way of life. And sometimes downright entertaining. Flee is what Paul says. Don't find yourself into the mold of the culture. Flee. We must flee because this type of sin cannot infiltrate who we are. Not just we individually as Christians, but the church. Because in 1 Corinthians 3, we're to be holy. In 1 Corinthians 6, we're literally the temple of God individually as well. And so we are supposed to flee, flee, flee. I have uh, on and off been teaching my children guitar. And as I've been teaching my children the guitar, oh, here we go. Got one. So you, you get, the, oh, okay. We get, you get the guitar, right? And you have to do this. And you have these, these, these strings here. And so when you play, it really hurts after a while. Like I had to learn in college and I would sit there and I would just hold a G and just watch a TV show for 30 minutes and let my fingers know what G feels like for 30 minutes. And my fingers, after a while, I haven't played in a while. I'm already getting lines on it. But after a while, after playing, like your fingers will just start killing you. You'll develop, which you're supposed to, in guitar calluses on your fingers. And getting calluses is good because finally, when you have calluses, it doesn't hurt. You become sense or numb to the pain of your fingers hurting after you play guitar. And I've been teaching them. And when they first learn, they're like, my fingers are killing me. And like, just soak them in cold water and hopefully it won't hurt anymore. But after you play a while, you'll get calluses on your fingers and you'll get numb to the pain. What Kevin DeYoung is describing is what's happening to our hearts. We're developing calluses on our heart and soul that we're becoming numb to the pain that we should feel in regard to our rampant sexual morality. Calluses are forming on us. And that's not good. Now, guitar is good. But for us, it's not. We have calluses on our heart so that it doesn't hurt our heart. It actually hurts less and less the more we let those calluses form when it comes to sexual morality. And what we want then, therefore, is to not have a calloused heart. We don't want it. And the way that the Bible describes us to never let our hearts get callous and become a part of the mold is, as it says um, in verse 18, the first word, 618, flee. And this means exactly what you think it means. Run the other direction as fast as you can. Run the other direction as fast as you can. Some of us need to know why. Why? I'm strong enough. I can, I can do it. Let's talk about why quickly. Uh, running short. <laughs> here's why we flee. As God's temple, here's why we flee. Number one, or number A. 13 and 20. You can see it. 13 and 20. Um, food is meant for the stomach. The stomach food, God will destroy both one the other. The body is not meant for sexual malady, but for the Lord. The body is meant for the Lord. You can see it in verse 20. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body is not yours. It's for the Lord. It's for God. So reason why God has created our bodies then there for the Lord and for his ultimate glory. You flee because your body is for God. It's God's body now. And so you flee. You run as far as you can away from it. And then you pursue holiness with everything you can. 
Paul makes it clear that our bodies are God's. They're not to be meant for sexual morality. And so church, we have to, be real, we have to realize that we've been created for God, by God, for God. And as such, our bodies belong to him. Our bodies don't belong to ourselves anymore. They are made for God. And at every turn, our bodies are to be used since they've been created for his glory. They're to be used for him. Your body, whether you've been a Christian for an hour or 70 years, your body is God's. And so it's to be used for him. So you flee because your body is the Lord's. The next reason is this. And this is theological. It's kind of deep, but it's important. Verse 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? B. Reason B. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so God is with us. And as it says in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take a member of Christ and make them a member of a prostitute? Mega noitwe. Never. Like never. The idea, just the, the sheer idea. I, I'm going to, this is going to say, and I'm not trying to be vulgar. I'm not trying to be crass, but the, I'm just going to try to make the word picture as complete as I can of what Paul's trying to do here. Imagine, imagine. 2,000 years ago, as Jesus is in his public ministry, before, Magna, before Mary Magdalene gets saved, that he has a hookup with a prostitute. You hear about Jesus hooking up with a prostitute. I know that sounds crass. This is what Paul's trying to do. I'm not trying to be crass. Hearing that as a believer, you should just scream, never know. And he's trying to help you see, since the Holy Spirit resides in you, the same rep- repulsion you had, is that a word, that you have towards, repulsiveness, one of those two, that you have towards the idea of Christ doing that, you should have for yourself. You flee because God is in you. Point B, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you don't put, unite Jesus with a prostitute. You don't unite the Holy Spirit inside of you with sexual morality, ever. You don't do it. Third reason, in 20, number C, why you flee? Because you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. The precious price of Jesus Christ going to the cross. The infinite worth of the value of the son was what was purchased for your redemption and my redemption. And so the reason why you flee is because he's worthy and you are bought with this amazing price of cross of the cross of Christ. And so uh, if, as we look at number two, and we see this as an individual, we saw A, B, and C. All, all of point two, A, B, and C are really just kind of subpoints of the first thing that we saw in C. You know, whenever we saw what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to be holy. Chapter six just helps us individually think about what it means to be holy and how we flee sexual morality and really flee any temptation of sin and what it means to run away and why. Because God has created us as, as his. We, he, he's our Lord now. Our body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we were bought with the price. And so, since this is the case, if we're thinking about what it means to be God's temple now as members, we know that individually we're to, to pursue holiness with everything inside of us. Now let's back out and go back to 1 Corinthians 3 and think about what it means as us, as church members now. This is what it means. That we are God's temple and God's presence is here with us. And so whenever we're here on Sunday as the corporate church gathered together, we worship. God's presence is here. He should be leading you to sing out and worship him and hear from his word and interact with each other in the most Christ-honoring ways. We are God's temple. Let's be that in corporate worship. Also, since we have been declared holy, 
we should pursue holiness. And lastly, we're God's temple. And so no one should destroy it. Therefore, everyone should, as we see, uh, enhance or pursue unity. Now, here's how I want to conclude. I want to conclude by reminding us of the good news of the gospel. You've heard lots of um, commands and exhortations from the word to be holy. And you can hear that and you can say, all up to me. Got to tie up my bootstraps and really try. It's all up to me. I'm going to be holy by sheer willpower. And that's not, that's not what it is. It's not at all. And that's never been God's design. So I want to remind us again from this exact text we're looking at. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, um, 9 through 11. 9 and 10, super bad news. Sound really dreadful. When you get to verse 11, it's awesome. Remember in context who we're talking to. We're talking to Corinth. Paul's talking to Corinth. And therefore, put yourselves in the hearer, hearer's shoes because you fall and I fall into the, these people. We fall into this crowd of people being described in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he's going to list what the unrighteous. These are the people that go to hell. He's going to say, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, the thieves, or the greedy, or the drunkards, or the revilers, or swindlers will inherit in the kingdom of God. And then you say, well, that's, that's not so encouraging, Paul. Now, let's make sure we hear this. What you d- should do when you hear that is put yourself in that category and say, well, I'm one of those. I'm certainly one of those. I'm definitely one of those. Now, here's where it gets to be awesome. These next few words, I mean, I I recite these next few words to myself over and over and over and over and over. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, those first few words are just beautiful. And this is how we pursue holiness. This is what holiness is based on. He's talking to Corinth, rampant, sinful Corinth. And this is what he says to him. He, d- he describes this awful practices in verse 9 and 10. And he looks at them and he says, And such were some of you. That was your past, but that's not you now. You were that as the old man. You were that as the old creation, but now you're the new man. You're the new creation. And you're not that anymore. And you don't have to identify that as yourself anymore. That's who you were. But you are now the new man. Such were some of you. As God's temple, we were that. But now we are God's temple. And now this is what's true of us. This is so beautiful. Look what he says here. Verse 11. But you were washed. The deepest cleansing that you can receive. All your sin washed away. Because of Christ on the cross, because you were bought with his precious blood, because he died on the cross for you and you say, Christ, forgive me of my sin. I want to make you my Lord. You were in my place and now I get your righteousness and you took all my sin on the cross. I, I, I confess my sin. Save me, God. The great exchange, as Luther says, happens. And now you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You have been literally set apart now and you're being sanctified. And then it says this, and you were justified in the courtroom of God. He banged the gavel and he looks at you and says, acquitted. You are innocent now. Jesus takes your place. You're innocent. You're righteous. You're holy. So the declarate or the the encouragement and the commands to be holy that he tells us are possible because of the declaration of God that you are holy. He, can't, he, he doesn't command us to do something that he already, already commanded us that we are. We can be holy because we are holy. The ontological status or the, the, the state of being that we have now, holy. And since that's the case, now we can walk in that. 
You are holy. You are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified if you're in Christ. And since that's the case, you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And since that's the case, that's who you are. All because of the good news of Jesus, you can be God's temple. You can be holy. You can enjoy the presence of God as we are the temple, as we worship together. You can pursue holiness because you are holy. And you can, with everything you have, um, pursue unity in the spirit of the bond of peace. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this amazing truth that we are your temple. It's just astounding that you have declared us your temple. The place where the spirit of God dwells. Amazing. Amazing. We can't and never should get over that. We are your temple. Thank you for the declaration of holiness that you have declared us. And Lord, help us walk in that and live in that. We love you. We praise you. We're thankful for this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.